Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hey friends, welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. We're getting full. (laughs) I'm getting full. There are 70, if if I did my math correctly, which is an open question, I assure you, there are 74 pages remaining in the great War and Peace. 74, that's like a novella, man. Hang on, I did my math from the wrong place. There's 74 pages remaining if you take today's reading as a part of that lump. Wow, that's so exciting. And today's reading was all about people. It was all about people. <laughs> I just think I'm loving this. I love how he's wrapping this up. I love that he knows, even though he doesn't <laughs> know, he does know what it is that we want to read about. And he's giving it to us here. And I love it. Marriage is what brings, brings us, us together, together today. today. <laughs> that blessed arrangement. Anyways, how are the two of you today? Great. Doing well. Don't you both kind of wish that we had big country houses where we came to each other's house to stay for two to three to seven weeks at a time? Yes. And don't you love that when Pierre says he's going to be gone for three weeks, he's actually gone for seven? I thought that was awesome. I'd be so mad. It's so Pierre. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I know. I'm sitting there reading it. And just to bring up the two marriages that we're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about, I sat there reading it and thought, oh, I'd never get away with that. No, sir, I would not. (laughs) She would. (laughs) She'd be so mad at me. I'm sure it was different times. Like, it's not like he could have a bus or like a plane. It's hard to get places. Except he's the Count Zukov. I mean, he could hire a music to carry him piggyback, you know? (laughs) (laughs) He is very wealthy. That's true. It is in the background a subject of contention. Natasha is so mad that he's been gone that long that she really, the the book says she really gives it to him when he gets back. (laughs) Yeah, she really gives it to him. I just, to return to your original question about the houses, I like, and marriage, I know that you and I have different reasons for thinking that would be awesome. Like you're over there thinking, (laughs) if I had a giant house, I could fit all the people I love into it. Yep. And I'm like, if I had a giant house, we could have guests and I could close them off in their own wing and not see them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God preserve us. Um, So, no, I love it. I love the idea of, well, but here's the thing. It's an infrastructure supported by laborers. Right. I mean, the, the fact that they have the food and the wealth to live that way. I mean, imagine yourself for a second trying to host a dinner party for 45 people every night for seven weeks. There's no way. There's no way. I mean, the, the, the kind of world economy we live in right now is not really built around that, that kind of thing. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. And, but the med- here's the thing that was, that was fascinating to me is that the meditation from Tolstoy in Nikolai's character about how his management of his affairs and his estate turns him into a competent, settled, fully realized man with, of high character makes me think that on the one hand, serfdom, it's wrong. There's, <laughs> there's a reason that we did away with serfdom, right? 
uh, and what he's doing is managing not slaves because they weren't slaves, but he's managing a bunch of subordinate laborers who look at look on him as a different class of human being. So it's just this side of slavery, mm-hmm. and but- yet, and hold on, I'm not finished with my thought, and and yet, the product of honest labor is to make a man out of you, even if consequent. Consequent centuries are going to look back and say the kind of honest labor that you considered honest isn't. There's still human nature operative. And so Tolstoy's talking about something true. But I agree with you. But also, it's not just labor. It's responsibility. Oh, Um, of course. Yes. He he is responsible for the well-being of all of these people and takes it seriously. And I think that's... That was kind of Tolstoy's vision of serfdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he definitely idealized the simple life, and yet his characters are always upper class, and they take their responsibility to govern, provide for these. It's like in the feudal system, right? They're responsible for the well-being of these people. Well, yeah, I actually saw it as Nikolai humbling himself subconsciously to not come in and dominate these people, but to learn from them. So he actually considered the musics on his land, both goal and judge. So they're there. Yeah, that was the line. Yeah, he's learning from them what it is that they need, what what his job is. There's this amazing line. Uh, Let's see, where does where does it begin? Only when he understood the tastes and strivings of the music. Learned to speak his language and understand the hidden meaning of his speech. When he felt akin to him, only then did he begin boldly to manage him. That is, to fulfill in relation to the musics that very duty, the fulfillment of which was demanded of him. And Nikolai's farming produced the most brilliant results. So it's almost like if you're thinking of the caste system that you brought up, Ian, he has to forget his station and imagine himself one of them to learn from them in order to give them what they need from him because of the caste system. Yeah, totally true. The, and this is not to gainsay any of the things that you just said, because that's absolutely right. It also felt to me as though Tolstoy was telling another truth alongside that, which is that that kind of self-emptying and humility usually comes upon you unawares. In other words, it usually happens because of an excess of interest. And this connects to another portion a little bit later in our readings, where he's talking about Natasha and how when you give your attention to any small part of human life, it becomes infinite in its variety and its complexity. And I think that's what happens to Nikolai. He he gets interested in farming to because he has to out of necessity, right? This is the way I'm going to make my living. And so I've got to figure this out. And then it gets it, it, it obsesses him. It's, it's fascinating to mm-hmm. him. And so the fact that what he's doing is submitting himself to these musics and learning from their knowledge isn't really at issue in his mind. What he's trying to do is master a subject. And you can see this in the way that he talks to, to Princess Maria about his job. There's a couple of lines in there like he wouldn't ever – she tries to praise him for being good to his, his people, his mm-hmm. servants – and he bristles at the idea. Oh, I'm not being good to them. I'm just, I'm just trying to be a successful businessman, right? And yep. there's, he's holding on to this atmosphere of being the master a little bit, and doesn't see what what we see in him and what Tolstoy paints for us in him, which is that he is actually a man of high moral character and humility who's putting himself in the place of his of his workers. Which is in part of the influence of like the the subtle, quiet influence of his wife, probably. And then I see yeah. in, in his stubborn holding on to this 
appearance of like fierce uh, capitalism. Like I'm just a businessman out in the world. I don't care about human kindness or anything like that. I see a direct response to his father. He says, uh-huh. it's all poetry and old wives tales, all this good of one's neighbor. I want our children not to go begging. I have to set up our fortune while I live. That's all. What's needed for that is order, strictness. That's what he said, clenching his sanguine fist. <laughs> and justice, of course, he added, because if a peasant is naked and hungry and has only one little nag, he won't work well, either for himself or for me. So, don't, don't stop there. There's another There's another sentence. It must have been because Nikolai did not allow himself the thought that he was doing anything for others out of virtuousness. All that he did was fruitful. And so the, fr- the fruit comes from the fact that it's unselfconscious, which I think is beautiful and honestly a very a very christian idea we don't need to go into that well that, maybe we can length, for but. a minute though because i actually saw this as a tying back to all the historic principles or the historical theory that he's been giving us alongside our plot all along because he says the way to interpret history is to take your hands off the wheel and stop trying to be god and interpreting it be unselfconscious. Nice. That's the way to be a satisfied, happy creature mm. in this world. And I saw him tying those two things together together and giving us a relational picture as well. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think you're so right. You're so right. Yeah. And if he had been doing this all along, just this is the only thing I'll say today. If he had been doing this all along, if it, if the, if the the historical theory meditation had been this human from page number one, all I would talk about ever in any conversation with anyone is this book. Right. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that in the like we're given a yearly portrait of what Nikolai does, and in the winter time when he's not farming, he reads history books, which mm-hmm. Tolstoy has been very clear. He's been ripping into. <laughs> he's been laying into <laughs> so history, guys. I just wondered guys. why why that. Like, it seems like here at the end, Nikolai has kind of swung to the other extreme, like. He was a Rostov. He was completely carefree. His father was generous to a fault. And he participated in a family life that was entirely self-conscious or unselfconscious. And now he's gone to the other side where he's like very regimented and he's out for his family to survive and have what they need. And he's going to succeed. And uh, he reads history books because he has to know things. He's going to know everything. (laughs) Yeah. And I think Tolstoy tells us that tongue in cheek, at least I got the sense that he did because he describes it as uh, Nikolai did it as a self-imposed duty at first, but later it became habitual because it provided him a special sort of pleasure and the awareness of being occupied with a serious matter. So it's a little silly, you know? (laughs) Yep. Yeah. But it's totally right. Like I know the feeling. I know exactly the feeling he's talking about. Absolutely. That moment when you have, you have, you don't have to, no one is asking you to, it's not a requirement. You choose to do something that is objectively healthy and good, good for, you. for you. Yeah. When you choose you reading think, a book over watching a TV show tonight <laughs> and you think, yeah, exactly. You're like, I'm so serious. I'm so grown up. I'm so intellectual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You guys. And I, oh, go ahead, Emily. I was just going to finish that idea by saying, I think there's something really beautiful about the fact that even though this kind of character has been ridiculed, throughout the book and Tolstoy himself has been laying into the history books and into these people who like do serious things to be serious. 
I don't get that sense here. I think it's loving. He's lovingly portraying Nikolai. Yeah. Which makes all of these things just human things. And the things that really matter underneath come out of him kind of, as you we were saying, unconsciously. Like, even in the section I read, he's... um talking about how he doesn't want his children to beg and he's going to he's going to be good he's going to manage his affairs well and then it just kind of slips out in the end what's needed is order strictness and justice and then he kind of covers that up and says because if if we don't treat them well they won't work for us well but you can tell that he really does care about these people and wants them to to get what they need yeah, at a couple pages before, Tolstoy describes it as a yardstick in his soul, helping him to determine good and bad. And he couldn't have told you what constituted this yardstick, but it was firm and unwavering. So there is a virtue and a morality underneath it that is concerned with his people's highest good. Yeah, I agree. I think Pierre had the, the same yardstick. So let's move from there. Great, wonderful discussion of Nikolai as an individual human being. <laughs> let's talk a minute about... Princess Maria, before we move on to their marriage, and then I fancy compare their marriage to that of the Bezukovs. Well, and hopefully talk about the uh, elephant in every room, Sonia. (laughs) Which is Sonia. That's sort of what I mean by talking about Princess Maria, because we can't talk about Princess Maria without talking about what is apparently, I think, in my historical memory, her only flaw as a human being, which is that she doesn't like Sonia. Which I don't it's even awesome. consider to be a flaw because <laughs> neither do I. You guys, so, how about this transition? I mean, this I literally wrote in the margin of my book in all capitals, whoa, because the transition <laughs> goes like this. He, he spent his time in the winter entering into the minute relations between mother and children. He, Nikolai, became closer and closer with his wife, every day discovering new spiritual treasures in her. And here's the transition. From the time of Nikolai's marriage, Sonia had been living in his house. <laughs> That this is because the people translating this understand English and, and humor. the phrase yeah. in his house is funny. <laughs> that is insane. Oh. No wonder Princess Maria hates her. Hey, get out. <laughs> Just casually your his ex-girlfriend lives with <laughs> Just get out. Oh get goodness. into the outbuilding somewhere. Yeah. I love it, though. It's so satisfying to have the care. I was telling Emily this, the character that Tolstoy has used to bless all the things that are worthy of blessing and to curse all the things that are curse worthy mm. is now unable to like Sonia because she's kind of a manipulative, shallow jerk. But at the same time, he's trying to make us have compassion. But I do think he's acknowledging we're with Countess Maria on this one. We need mm-hmm. to be told this Bible verse about from whom, no, the person who has no one, everything will be taken from them. We need to know that too and feel some pity for her, you know? Yeah. And it's also, he, he makes a comment about how she's a particular kind of person. He uses Natasha to do it, right? A she's sterile a blossom. sterile blossom. <laughs> this was horrible. She was, never, she was never going to be fruitful, which is, and this might be a little, <laughs> a little awkward, but he, the way that he describes healthy femininity throughout the course of this description of these two marriages is fruitfulness, mm-hmm. yeah. right? A beautiful woman is a fruitful woman because, <laughs> and 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 I'm going to be as full throated and 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 in approval of this as possible because I think our author is mm-hmm. the purpose of marriage is family, right? And just like the purpose of a meal is nourishment, I thought that was an interesting image that he used. Mm-hmm. You can take pleasure in something that isn't nourishing, and so there's a distinction between marriage being for pleasure and marriage being for 
nourishment. Mm-hmm. And one gets the sense after watching him describe Nikolai and the way he's running his estate that nourishment is not just for the family and for the children, but also for the society that that surrounds them. Yep. I thought mm-hmm. that was really interesting. So Sonia was never going to be a fruitful woman. Why is that, do you think? I don't know. It again, and not to put too many images together, but she's also described like a cat all along. And cats are very solitary and skeptical of people. <laughs> um, but she is accustomed to the house and to its people, but it's not individualized. I think of Pierre uh, learning from that guy who, the potato guy, whose name I, is escaping me right now, Karatev, is that his name? That love should not be particularized. It should be for everyone equally alike. I wonder if Tolstoy is toying with that idea again, but maybe portraying it in a more negative sense this time, because she doesn't go off and have her own family and individuate that love. She just stays and makes herself useful, but stays apart all at the same time. Hmm. I wonder, to have some sympathy for her, I wonder if it kind of originated in the fact that she was not treated as a full-blooded member of the family that she belonged to be- to begin with. By the but, Count and Countess. Yeah, she's, she's their niece, and she's taken in by them, but Countess Rostov always treats her as one apart, she doesn't really approve. She's afraid of what's going to happen between her and Nikolai. And so she kind of intentionally sets her apart and kind of treats her like their servant in some ways and never embraces her as a daughter. And so she doesn't belong. I thought, I thought that all the way up through the reading until, and I'm just going to put this in as plain in English as I can possibly <laughs> muster, until Maria and Nikolai have a fight and Sonia puts herself in the middle of it and takes Nikolai's side, as though to imply to Princess Maria that, that she knows, she knows her husband as well or better. And I that, I well, think... Well, she shouldn't kick her out. She shouldn't be living there. Seriously, <laughs> dude. I mean, but but that's the thing, right? This giant r- rambling c- cabin in the woods, and it's got, you know, f- 40 friends and relations staying in it all the time. So it's, I don't think it's that it's the living there. I think there's more implied by the living in his house than just simply being on the property. There's a ton of people living in his house. I know, but particularly... She's living in intimate connection to their marriage, having opinions out loud about it. And neither one of them are going to say anything to her about it because they feel guilty. Well, Sonia and the old countess are both watching them on a daily basis, wishing for some disagreement between them so that there could be, you know, some reproach for how perfect Nikolai and Maria are. They've got an audience of their (laughs) mother-in-law and the ex. (laughs) This is crazy. (laughs) Yeah, I just think Tolstoy is taking a malicious delight and setting up the most miserable situation. He has so many estates and houses. Wouldn't it be great to just give them a couple servants and put them in another house? (laughs) What about Booga Booga Booga? Booga Charvo or whatever that that is. What about Booga Booga Booga? And now he has Bald Hills because he married the Balkonskis. Also, Bald Hills was the the palace at Bald Hills was burned down in the war. You guys remember that part? (laughs) Are you saying also as in we should definitely send Sonia there? (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, I mean, I think it's interesting. This is this actually a beautiful image. If I was going to do one of our like writing assignments from school and we had to do this little short, the the close readings. Yeah. Yeah. They're just a few paragraphs or whatever. I would do it on this because Bald Hills was the seat of Andre's pride. 
Mm-hmm. Right? It was this big, beautiful palace, and it was made out of stone. You made a note of that in the in the first place. Then it gets torn down by the by the war and the ravagings or whatever. And on the old stone foundations, Nikolai and Maria rebuild a wooden simpler house. A simple wooden house like a music would live in. It's just huge. Right? It's a massive palace-sized log cabin. And it's only that. plastered on the inside. And so it's it's rustic and homey and it's theirs and it talks about how all the furniture was made with the birches from their own land and joined by their own carpenters and i think it's i think it's a cool image for the for the transition that's happened Mm. in the families about money and what it's for and how we use it but then also the transition that's happening in russia right from a a a top-down aristocratic society into a grassroots um society of the every man now it's Beautiful idea until you get to communism, but we're not dealing with that here. We're not talking about the, the millions dead. Whew. Okay, so let's can we do let's do marriage talks because I think that's it. Sort of leads leads there. So we've get we get Nikolai and Maria first, and then we get Natasha and Pierre. Did you guys see two different kinds of marriage arrangements going on here, or are there commonalities? Is he giving us a a two sided mm. picture to? what a good marriage looks like. Well, there were things that I that I admired in both descriptions. I'm thinking of the Nikolai and Maria one first because we come to it first. He they have a fight and he needs to reassure her at the end of the fight that he loves her. She gets insecure. And she says, um, it seems that you can't love me because I'm so plain. Here again, Tolstoy brings up how ugly Princess Maria is and that it's constantly <laughs> not a good looking woman. <laughs> she is not pretty unless she is crying about how unvirtuous someone is. That's it. It's the only moment that she's beautiful. So he brings that home to us again as clearly something that makes her insecure. And she's also pregnant. So she thinks that she's ugly because she's like, you know, it's like the beached whale phenomenon. And his response to her, I think, is really a funny combination of, I can't believe you just said that. And, well, that's really true. He says, um, <laughs> she says, it seems to me you can't love me because I'm so plain, always. And now in this con- like condition, like now that she's pregnant. Ah, uh, how funny you are. Not dear for being pretty, but pretty for being dear. <laughs> just what everyone wants to hear their man say. Yeah, uh, right. No, you're I don't not know how pretty. he gets away with this. Yeah. Men only love Malvina and the like because they're beautiful. But do I love my wife? It's not love, but just, I don't know how to tell you. <laughs> At this point, I'd be punching him in the face. Without you, or like today, when there's some falling out between us, it's as if I'm lost and can't do anything. Well, do I love my finger? I don't love it. But try cutting it off. You're right. It's like, it's true, but like, whoa, man. Yeah. Well, yeah. But I'll speak, I'll speak for, for men here. There yeah. are two of you, and you guys are both women, right? Sure, and then yes. there's me and Tolstoy. <laughs> All right. And, I, and I'm in pretty good company over here. No, I, I think there is something absolutely true about this. And, and it's, it's obviously a man writing the novel. And so, and so he's, he's able to just speak without being interrupted. <laughs> so, whoa. But, I, whoa. but what I think, what I think is that, it does it it does feel like that and it isn't to say that a, a husband doesn't find his wife beautiful he does mm-hmm. he certainly does and that he's not attracted to her he is but there's the effect of the union is to make the two of them feel like one person mm. and you rely you rely on your wife and her presence and her opinions and her everything about her as a feature of your own self existing in the world mm. and the struggle for a man i think is to remember that that's 
spiritually true and theoretically true <laughs> and she's a person in need of relating to right but i understand i get yeah. it i totally get it i think he's again expressed something totally universal in a healthy marriage this is one of the things that happens all the time every so often she's got to go hey and remind you that she needs attention as an individual instead of just being a part of you and your life because because if your marriage is healthy that is how it's going to feel she's going to feel like a part of you a part of your mind a part of your heart a part of your life and so that that line yeah not dear for being pretty, but pretty for being dear is not an admission that she's ugly looking. <laughs> it's an expression. It's an expression of where true beauty actually comes from and how a man perceives it. Of course, we perceive it this way. Yeah, I think that's really well put, and I I understand it theoretically looking in to the novel, and I think he he goes <laughs> one step further to make sure we don't miss it in even in their conversation. Um, he describes Nikolai diving off again into telling telling Marie all about what he's thinking in the day. And he mm -hmm. says, he did not ask whether she was prepared to listen to him. It made no difference to him. The thought had occurred to him, which meant to her too. It had occurred to her. Right. Yeah, uh -huh. So that, that two become one idea comes around again. <laughs> I, do that. I literally do that to Emily all the time. <laughs> so here's what we were thinking. I'll get, right. <laughs> I'll get halfway through some crazy thing that I'm thinking about and realize that she doesn't care. She didn't have time. And she was doing something else when I started talking. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's rude it's objectively rude <laughs> but here we are <laughs> oh it's funny well what do you guys think does this look like happy healthy marriage it seems so to me oh mm -hmm. totally i don't know emily go ahead i've done enough talking yeah i think so i think so i mean i think that he's painting happy marriage and part of that portrait is that they have their flaws mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. and they're just kind of covering for each other in that. So it's not that totally. it's perfect, but it's, it's real, mm. you know? Yeah. Leave it to Tolstoy. Yeah. So, okay. Let's do Pierre and Natasha. Oh yeah. And let's compare. Cause we finally, whoa, finally get some Pierre and Natasha. Also, I'm a little offended mm. that we've been waiting all this time for Pierre and Natasha stuff. And he just skims the marriage, skims right over the yep. top of it. And we would check back in seven years later when there's already babies. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on, dude, dude, <laughs> we waited so long for this. I, I kind of feel like, how dare you? But discuss, what do you guys see here when we finally get back to Pierre and Natasha? Well, I actually, this, this chapter or series of chapters helped me to forgive him for that. Cause I've been feeling that way towards Tolstoy. Can, how can you get us right up to the point where there's payoff and then we don't get to see them, you know, being married. But I think that he left them for so long because he wanted to talk about their personalities being changed and developed by the institution of marriage. Like those little seeds of appreciation for each other or the, the person that Natasha was going to be because of being loved by Pierre at the, when we last saw them has blossomed and he's let her do that on her own. And then he shows her to us. And it's like a dramatic change. She has like physically she's filled out. She's a woman, not a girl in all of these ways. But also personality wise, she's no longer concerned with making herself the center of attention. She is fully engrossed in spending her attention on other other people which i thought specifically was specifically on her family on her family yeah on her her children uh, and her husband i thought it was i i worried for a second that he was going to go to preaching and to meddling yes, a little bit i was too on this is this is the only valid kind of womanhood but he doesn't i think for a couple of reasons first of all he gives us maria and she handles it differently than natasha does and mm -hmm. it's still portrayed as a really healthy marriage and then secondly he does. He is honest and open about the fact that people are sniping at right. her. 
from out in the world about doing it this way, including from inside of her family, mm-hmm. that her mother has a different opinion of how she should be handling it. And so this also feels like a real portrait of a slightly different kind of marriage. It seems like she, I think unconsciously, but her behavior towards Pierre is particularly tailored to be loving to him. She, I mean, think about his history. He's had an extremely unfaithful wife who is entirely concerned with society and appearances. Yeah. And so Natasha completely 180s that and is like she lets herself go. Yeah. And she's completely devoted to Pierre. She shuns society and like doesn't want that. And I can see that being really comforting. Like Pierre never has to doubt that he's done it again. <laughs> yeah, I like that, especially because Tolstoy does emphasize that Natasha doesn't care to be attractive to other people, any other people mm-hmm. beyond Pierre. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, like you said, a 180 compared to Helene. This part made me happy. I, I liked his, it. It was funny. It says, from the very first day of their marriage, Natasha had announced her demands. Pierre was very surprised by his wife's view, which was completely new to him, that every minute of his life belonged to her and the family. Pierre was surprised by his wife's demands, but was flattered by them and submitted to them. (laughs) Oh, I love it. And people think that that means he's under her heel in a negative sense. But he's not. But he's not. Because the other thing that happens, and this is is a wonderful, I didn't even think about it until you just said it that way, Emily. But it's it's a cool expression of the idea that that we are to submit one to another, right? The demand from the scriptures. Because that's exactly what's happening. He's submitting to her needs and her desires and her expressed wishes. And so is she, because we get a description of how she handles the running of their household. And it is to not only follow to the letter everything that he says he wants, but also to try and deduce from the things he says he wants his wishes, Mm -hmm. which he has, we all know, a lot of trouble figuring out for himself and expressing. <laughs> right. Right. So she makes it her business to read his mind and run the household exactly the way he wants it run. And the combination of those two different submissions of their own will to one another is that they both get their needs met. Mm. And I think it's just gorgeous. Well, and it's a good pairing of their gifts because Natasha is really good at getting to the essential heart of things, not intellectually, but with her heart. <laughs> and so she can kind of ferret out what he's thinking. And he is actually like, really good at prioritizing things well at least Mm -hmm. now but maybe can't express them as well so they make a good match yeah particularly i'm just thinking on that how true that is in this description when pierre (laughs) when natasha has guessed what pierre really wants and then he is gonna pull a pierre and you know make that desire take a back seat or be wishy-washy i'm imagining a scene where someone else wants something contrary to his true wish and he's going to let them have it because it's the path of least resistance and he doesn't like confrontation <laughs> Nick, uh, natasha fights him with his own weapons to ensure that he gets what he wants which i thought was beautiful it was That's like awesome. the perfect combination of personalities she's fierce for him in a way that he's always I don't know, been a little bit retiring and gotten walked all over. That's not going to happen to him anymore, you know? Well, because, yeah, that tells us that he's still himself. Like, yes, he's undergone this transformation, but he still has his own personality proclivities. So he is going to be a little wishy-washy. And now she's there to keep him from that. The other thing I thought is that he's also completely up and his head is in the clouds. He thinks things 
idealistically mm-hmm. like he like he and Andre used to do together. So he he takes his opinion about breastfeeding from Rousseau. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which That's is just funny hilarious. And Natasha takes that out of the clouds and makes it something real, you know, something practical in the way that they live their family life. So she's grounded in reality in a way that he's always just going to be a little aloof. (laughs) (laughs) But I also think that that aloofness is not something that is condemned by Tolstoy. The last line of our section for today is really beautiful. I'll just read it to you. After seven years of married life, Pierre felt a joyful, firm consciousness that he was not a bad man and felt it because he saw himself reflected in his wife. In himself, he felt all the good and the bad mixed together and obscuring each other. But only what was truly good was reflected in his wife. All that was not entirely good was rejected. That's such a very Natasha thing to do. Um, And this reflection came not by way of logical thinking, but otherwise as a mysterious, unmediated reflection. Gorgeous. Mm Mm-hmm. I just, I want to read Anna Karenina because I have heard that the entire book is meditations like this on human nature and the way that men and women relate to each other. And it's a book about marriage. And I think Tolstoy has a lot to say about that. And he's only given us little sips here and there in this book, you know? That's what Emily's been trying to tell me because I'm going to need, full disclosure, a break from Mr. Leo (laughs) Tolstoy here in just a second. But I also love it. I mean, I think his style is so enthralling and... I'm remembering back to the early days of this before we got appetite just a hair <laughs> and remembering how we couldn't stop saying, oh my gosh, this guy's such a great stylist. Yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's when clear he does it and this incisive way. and flowery all at once. Yeah. Yeah. So what I want is a, a more of a traditional novel out of him, not a novel blended with treatise. Mm-hmm. And apparently that's what Anna Karenina is all about. Yeah, it's great. Anna Karenina is awesome. I have a completely entirely random reflection. Okay. <laughs> Let's go. Nothing like this. It, it's earlier. I'm going back earlier. I meant to say this before. There's just a weird detail in the text. And here we are like reading small sections so that we can notice these things and try to unpack them. Okay. So it has to do with Nikolai and his behavior towards the musics and how occasionally he roughs them up. <laughs> oh, oh, dude. Yeah. This, I can't believe we didn't talk about this. Yeah. I love this part. Okay. So he... He does this. He's an angry person and uses his fists. And that's, he considers that to just be part of his personality. And so he's out on the porch with his steward and eventually, like, knocks him one. <laughs> uh, and Maria is upset by this. Um, and they have their conversation and he realizes that he was wrong. But the symbol that he's going to have to remind him of his behavior is this ring that got chipped when he, when he hit the, the music. music. <laughs> yeah. And he literally it is, broke it on someone's face. Yeah. yeah, he broke it on someone's face, yeah. And it's a cameo of Laokun from the Aeneid. And I just thought that was a super random detail, but it felt kind of important. So if I'm remembering correctly, Laokun is the prophet who stands on the beaches of Troy and prophesies that they should not. How does this go? I don't remember the details enough, but I think you've identified the character. Basically, I think he he's one of the prophets who tells them not to accept the horse, right? 
And then yeah, he, he gets is. swallowed by a serpent, sea a serpents. sea serpent. Yeah. So he's someone who stands there prophesying the truth, but then is swallowed up by the fates or whatever. So why Laokun, a damaged Laokun as a symbol for this change in behavior towards the musics? Because it does kind of feel like this is one of Tolstoy's concerns is... Uh, back to back to simplicity, right? Back to essential Russian way of living and the brotherhood of man. And Nikolai is kind of taking that on. Um, he is treating them as his brothers and as equals. So maybe he maybe he is the prophet of things that should be. Hmm. That's going to get destroyed by forthcoming history in some way because i know that so i did a little bit of reading and the decemperist movement is what's coming it's what tolstoy meant to write about mm. he, ended he up writing the prequel and ended up writing the prequel and although the decemperist movement was just about who was going to succeed succeed to the throne after alexander the decemberists wanted his son constantine to take it but there was another faction who fought for someone else paul I think it is. Although it seemed like it was just about that, it was also about serfdom and about the rights of the people. Um, and I think that maybe Constantine was going to undertake some reforms in that way or like took that position. But because they were defeated, it was kind of a, a setback hmm. in that area. So I don't know. That just felt like a really really specifically chosen detail on Tolstoy's part that was kind of passed over. Hmm. Yeah, that, that is interesting. All that I got from that section, I'm really glad you said that because I feel like I learned a lot. I didn't get any of the, the literary illusion. I missed it because I was so busy seeing this as another like virtue point for Maria, like her influence hmm. on Nikolai, <laughs> which is to basically make a shrine on his very finger to the idea of peace and patience mm -hmm. over fury and wrath, you know? You're you're right. You're totally right. But I was thinking more about Nikolai in that passage and how, again, Tolstoy's just telling us the truth. Nikolai is convicted and repents and then about twice a year forgets himself and does it again. Mm -hmm. And so he has to come back around. And it's not as though the influence of this reminder to be holy actually makes him holy. No. It doesn't make him holy. What it does is make him soft. And humble and repentant. Yeah. And I think that's... Like a little boy asking for forgiveness. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it's beautiful stuff. And that might be the difference between his marriage to Maria and Natasha's to Pierre. Like, Maria actually quietly stands up for herself and what she thinks, mm -hmm. her own opinions. And it seems like Natasha eventually always ends up taking the opinion yes. of Pierre. Um, <laughs> but I don't, I don't know. I'll defend her a little bit. I'll defend her a little bit because A, he doesn't have a backbone without her. Mm -hmm. And B, yeah. um, what she does accept from his views is only the good parts. And she utterly rejects all of their <laughs> yeah. exaggerations and, and all of the, the irritation with which he says them. Like we, we're even told that in their arguments, Pierre overspeaks. <laughs> <laughs> he, he maybe he's got there's a kernel of a good idea in there, but he says it the wrong way and he misapplies it and he exaggerates and she quietly understands what was good in there, rejects all of the bad stuff and then institutes it and then preaches it at him when yeah. he tries to go back on his word. I don't I don't think that's being 
But again, yeah, I, I think afraid to stand up it's for fun to have the two marriages side by side, though, because even in their friendship stage, Natasha and um, and Princess Maria, before either of them are, are married, uh, there's this difference. Natasha is all instinct and Princess Maria is all religion and mm, they temper mm-hmm. one another. And I think I see that played out in their marriages as well. Natasha is just as concerned with the right thing, the good thing, but she, she decides what that is based on this inner instinct, not based on, you know, firm religious reasons for morality. So it's the logical outworking of their personalities. It's very consistent, which I appreciate. Well, my goodness, you guys, this, this section is so rich and, um, and I feel like we could talk about it for another hour, but here we have been for close to an hour anyway. So I, I think we should wrap it up. Do you guys have any parting shots that you just simply must get in before we let our listeners go do some more chewing on War and Peace? Well, I do. I think of all of the characters we got to spend time with, again, once again, Pierre was the one we spent the least time with, and I super miss him. Like <laughs> He was gone for seven, seven, seven weeks, seven months, however long that was, and I feel like we have been missing him for that long. <laughs> I'm as mad as Natasha is yeah. that he's still absent. I'm glad you said it because I was going to. <laughs> yep. I feel that way too. I hope we get more Pierre before it's all over. And he's on, and at this point, Leo's only got about 60 more pages to give us that. So if we don't, I swear by all that's holy, if we don't end with a long flowery meditation on the state of Pierre's soul, <laughs> I'm going to find Leo Tolstoy's grave. I'm going to find and it. Say you wasted your epilogues. <laughs> you wasted your epilogues. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, thank you all as usual for joining us on this trek and thank the two of you for your brilliant insights. And, um, oh, I don't know. You want to just read 60 pages? <laughs> just, let's just it rip it off like we a are, I mean, so we are making an official decision as a team this week about what book we're doing next. Woo-hoo. If I understand correctly. So that's exciting. So, you that know, stay tuned. That is exciting. Okay, well, I guess we'll I guess we'll we'll post to the Facebook group whether we're going to do another five chapters or read the whole ending here for the next week. We'll we're, talk about that off the air. We're following the schedule. <laughs> <laughs> Says okay, his well, wife. <laughs> I take only the good, it? I reject the bad ideas. <laughs> oh, oh no. Oh no. <laughs> Okay, guys, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bon appétit. Bon appétit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.